hit our peak number of coronavirus cases. And it just feels like we're just in the air. We're just suspended in midair. And it is a weird thing. I'm glad uh, Jenna gave us quite a bit of like optimism and fun, because this isn't going to be so optimistic. <laughs> it's going to be adult-flavored. Um, schools now are making plans for the possibility of remaining closed through the rest of the fall. Some small businesses are starting to wonder if they'll ever be able to open again. And we're seeing some pretty dark clouds roll in over our economy with words like hyperinflation. Woo! These are some big things continuing to happen in our world. And this new mass uncertainty, of course, affects us as individuals, maybe in ways that we're not even aware of. For many of us, we've stumbled into a sort of survival mode. Does that resonate with you guys at all? That idea of being in survival mode? Maybe you're responding to things differently than you have in the past. Maybe you're surprising yourself with your emotional capacity, with your energy throughout the day. I think things are different. And as we're experiencing all of these changes and unknowns roll into view, I think fear is a response that's to be expected. It's a survival response. Fear isn't always a bad thing. It's what helps us instinctively avoid danger. Like if I'm in a field and I hear a rattle, I'm going to run because there's probably a rattlesnake somewhere. And how's that for a Texas-specific anecdote? I also think in times like these that fear causes us to cling to what we know, to who we know, to what we believe, etc. And it's really easy to hunker down with people who think like we do, who believe like we do, and who see the world like we do. At best, that can look like feeling safe with your family, but at worst, that can look like belittling or dehumanizing others because they don't share our worldviews. And now here's time for a confession. I've done that in the past few weeks. I've gotten really angry at people who, are just, who I feel are just missing the point of what's happening and leading others down a dangerous path. And that's my fear response. You're going the wrong way. Someone's going to get hurt. What if I get hurt? And some of that anger is legitimate, but it becomes problematic when I actually start to hate that person. And that's, that's an embarrassing thing for me to say. I don't often hate or ever really hate, but I, I felt that creep into my heart, and it feels like a cold wall established. And it also feels like my reaction is stronger because the stakes are higher right now. And I know for me, as I cling to what I believe and how I see the world, I'm actually, I'm, I'm less rational because I know these emotional responses are now flavored with survival mode. I don't know about you, but I felt like this pandemic and all of the fallout that's happened, um, at first there was like a cool display of mass solidarity with one another, and now it just feels like our partisanship and divisions are heightened. And that maybe kind of relates to what Jenna was saying with the, and Ryan, the, the travel through the, through the desert. At first, everyone was rejoicing because they were free, and then the complaining started. Opinions are getting louder and louder because fear, as our new reality sets in, makes us cling to what we believe. It becomes our fortress, and we really resist pushback. In the midst of these uncharted waters, I've been trying to ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus right now? Like in a really practical way, because we know that following Jesus isn't just having beliefs, 
but it is the way that we live. It informs the way that we live and respond to the world around us. And that answer probably looks different for different people. I'm going to set this over here. Um, just depending on who you are and what you do. But I thought this morning we could just spend a few minutes in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. So I'm going to read it from the message because um, it sounds, sounds a little bit new to my ears. You can follow along if you'd like, starting in verse 25. Then a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And he answered, well, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? And he said, that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do that and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? How would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling him a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, there was a priest on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the same road came to him. And when he saw the man's conditions, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. And then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religion scholar responded. Jesus said, go and do the same. Now, today, is as good a time as ever to recognize how provocative it was that Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. Because Samaritans and Jews were cultural enemies. They had beliefs that separated them from one another and a history of bad blood. And for whatever reason, the Jewish people in this story avoided helping the man who was hurt, one of their own. Maybe they thought that if they stopped to help him, they would be putting themselves in danger too. But that doesn't stop the Samaritan. He's utterly generous in his care for this person. And Jesus describes him as the one who fulfills the law of love and acted truly neighborly. Earlier this week, I was reading a sermon by Martin Luther King on being a good neighbor. And he, wordsmith that he was, articulated really well what this story means for us who tend to divide ourselves according to our political, ideological, religious, etc. allegiances. And I wanted to read a couple paragraphs from that sermon to you all this morning. And as I read this, uh, you may not agree with everything he says, and that's okay, but I encourage you to give it a listen regardless. Because just as the story of the Good Samaritan was provocative in its time, this is also provocative. And he wrote this in 1960, so is that... 60 years, 60, 70? 70 years ago. 60? Okay, that was my original answer. All right, here's Martin Luther King. Who is my neighbor? I do not know his name, says Jesus in essence. He is anyone towards whom you are neighborly. He is anyone who lies in need at life's roadside. He is neither Jew nor Gentile. He is neither Russian nor American. He is neither black nor white. He is a certain man, any needy man, on one of the numerous Jericho roads of life. So Jesus defines a neighbor, not with a theological definition, but with a life situation. 
the Samaritan had a capacity for universal altruism. He had a piercing insight into that which is beyond the eternal accidents of race, religion, and nationality. One of the great tragedies of man's long trek along the highway of history has been the limiting of neighborly concern to tribe, race, class, or nation. The God of the Old Testament uh, was a tribal God, and the ethic was tribal. Thou shalt not kill meant thou shalt not kill a fellow Israelite, but for God's sake, kill a Philistine. Greek democracy embraced a certain aristocracy, but not the hordes of Greek slaves whose labors built the city-states. The universalism at the center of the Declaration of Independence has been shamefully negated by America's appalling ten tendency to substitute some for all. Numerous people in the North and South still believe that affirmation, all men are created equal, actually means all white men are created equal. Our unswerving devotion to monopolistic capitalism makes us more concerned with the economic security of the captains of industry than for the laboring men whose sweat and skills keep the industry functioning. And what are the devastating consequences of this narrow group-centered attitude? It means that one does not really mind what happens to the people outside of his group. If an American is concerned only about his nation, he will not be concerned about the peoples of Asia, Africa, or South America. Is this not why nations engage in the madness of war without the slightest sense of penitence? Is this not why the murder of a citizen in your own nation is a crime, but the murder of citizens of other nations in war is an act of heroic virtue? If manufacturers are concerned only in their personal interests, they will pass on by the other side while thousands of people are stripped of their jobs and left displaced on some Jericho road as the result of automation and they will judge every move towards a better distribution of wealth and a better life for the working man to be socialistic. If a white man is concerned only about his race, he will casually pass by the person of color who has been robbed of his personhood, stripped of his sense of dignity, and left dying on some wayside road. The real tragedy of such narrow provincialism is that we see people as entities or merely as things. Too seldom do we see people for their true humanness. A spiritual myopia limits our vision to external accidents. We see men as Jews or Gentiles, Catholics or Protestants, Chinese or American, black or white. We fail to think of them as fellow human beings made from the same basic stuff as we, molded in the same divine image. The priest and the Levite saw only a bleeding body, not a human being like themselves. But the Good Samaritan will always remind us to remove the cataracts of provincialism from our eyes and see men as men. If the Samaritan had considered the wounded man as a Jew at first, he would not have stopped, for Jews and Samaritans had no dealings. He saw him as a human being first, who was a Jew only by accident. The good neighbor looks beyond the external accidents and discerns those inner qualities that make all men human and therefore brothers. Whew. There at the end, that reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians about the kingdom of God. The categories we use to label and divide ourselves among one another pale in comparison to the kinship we're offered in the kingdom, where we don't ask, like Cain, am I my brother's keeper? But we know that we belong to each other. The way that we care for one another as neighbors is tied into the way that we love God. So I want to leave us all with a few action steps, and this is coming from my own journal. These are questions I'm trying to ask myself as I feel the urge to cling to my team rise up in me. 
And the first one is just, what are you afraid of? And what role is fear having in your response to what's happening right now? What are you clinging to and why is that important to you? But most of all that question, what are you afraid of? Identify that fear. And the second question, when you observe someone else having a moment of reaction, whether that be in a Facebook comment or a protest, practice asking, what are they afraid of? How is fear impacting their response to all of this? And then maybe, how can I demonstrate the love of God to this person? That doesn't mean you have to agree with them or consent to their actions or beliefs, but that does mean that you're refusing to create an enemy and you're choosing to see their humanity before anything else. And as well, getting into more specifics of caring for one another, the need in our world right now has exploded. There was need before, there's far more need now. I think for me that can feel kind of paralyzing. I've, I have surprised myself with being kind of slow to like learn and seek out where the need is because I just know that it has exploded. And as we've talked about this, we figured probably a good place to start is with what's in front of us. And so if you are watching or listening to this, if you're part of this community and you have a need, would you let someone know? There's no shame or embarrassment. We're not viewing these needs as moral failures. There are things happening outside of our control right now, and we want to support one another, actually. That could look like paying bills, buying food, cooking food, running errands, etc. And we can get creative. If you have a need, let us know. And as well, check in on your neighbors, your actual neighbors, the people in your life. You have, you have your sphere of people that you interact with. Check in on them. And if, if, if they have any needs, let us know. And maybe we can take care of them as a community. This is, I think, the beginning of the needs that are going to arise because of this virus. This is the beginning of something that's really long ahead of us. But we figure this is a good place to start. And now I want to read um, one final thing from Dr. King's sermon to close us out. You may have heard this line before. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort or convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys and hazardous pathways, he will lift some bruised and beaten brother to a higher and more noble life. And then he ends his sermon by saying, and listen to this, I feel like this could have been written for today. More than ever before, my friends, men of all races and nations are today challenged to be neighborly. The call for a worldwide good neighbor policy is more than an ephemeral shibboleth. It is a call to a way of life which will transform our imminent cosmic elegy into a psalm of creative fulfillment. No longer can we afford the luxury of passing by on the other side. Such folly was once called a moral failure, but today it will lead to a universal suicide. We cannot long survive spiritually separated in a world that is geographically together. In the final analysis, I must not ignore the wounded man on life's Jericho Road, 
because he is part of me and I am part of him. His agony diminishes me and his salvation enlarges me. Amen.